Welcome back to the Content Lab. Here in the lab, we discuss all aspects of content creation, content management, and content marketing, along with my intrepid co-host, Liz Murphy. I, John Becker, will throw back the curtain, roll up our sleeves, and reveal what's on the slab. Ooh, we're going for the flair for melodrama this week in the intro. I like it. Well, it is just before Halloween when we're recording this, so it's a little bit of spookiness in the air. Liz, how are you? I'm fine in that I'm, what is that line from the Italian job? I'm freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. Uh, I turned 37 this past weekend, big high. Uh, But the lowest of the low is the fact that that birthday started with the Nationals tanking their first home game in the World Series. And then the next, or that evening, so bookending it, with another loss to the Houston Astros in the World Series. So this is fine. Everything is fine. I am not freaking out. Everything's great. John, how about you? How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I am many, many miles away from any World Series implications. My Yankees are out. Uh, so I am watching from the sidelines. At some, watching some very good baseball. Um, so in any case, by the time this uh, airs, that will all be decided and water under the bridge. Etc. There's a good chance I could be weeping going into next week's episode, but my hope is that today uh, I can take a mental respite from all of the emotional hand wringing I've been doing internally, like trying to justify, you know, nobody ever thought we were going to get to the World Series. You know, this is just, it's an honor to be nominated. My goal is for the next 30 or so minutes for us to take me away from World Series mania and talk about a topic that I say this every week with every topic we talk about, but I'm not only excited, I think this one is critically important. And just so you know, as I tee up this topic, this is something that's not just for content managers. It's anybody who's ever asked to create content at their organization, whether you're the digital marketer being forced to wear a lot of hats, the subject matter expert who's being, you know, very politely but persistently asked by a content manager to create an article on a topic. If you're creating content, this this episode is for you. Because we're talking today about how being overly general in your content, no matter whether you're talking about a video, a podcast such as this one, or more commonly, a blog post is the kiss of death. And I think that's something, John, you and I see is the biggest problem whenever drafts come across our desk, is that people do not go deeply enough. They stay very surface level, and instead of showing, they just tell. But I want to turn it over to you since you're in the hot seat this week. And I want you to tell me what what we mean when we say people are too general and why that's so bad. Absolutely. So the way I wanted to start with this topic is I wanted you to think about your average politician. Our politicians give speeches all the time, whatever you think or whatever your party, we all know what the politician's speech sort of sounds like. And politician speeches are mostly written by speechwriters who have studied things like rhetoric, um, which have been uh, many of the practices for which have been in practice for literally thousands of years literally thousands of years. They're Greek terms from, uh, from a really long time ago. But if you hear politicians talk, they are so often going to use two very powerful techniques to persuade their audience. And one is the anecdote and one is the statistic. And that doesn't seem all that groundbreaking, but I think it's important to sort of lay it out there and really say it. 
So the power of statistics is that a, a politician might say, you know, we've invested this much money or this many, you know, this is the unemployment rate or this is the consumer price index or this many people have, um, you know, bought homes or anything like that. Those statistics are, are powerful, maybe even more powerful, and they do this all the time, is the anecdote. And so you can picture any politician saying, well, it makes me think of, you know, Mary from Sheboygan, Wisconsin, who was able to realize her dream of opening a, a crepe stand or, or something, you know, and, and it's, and I have Mary in the audience tonight, you know, those sorts of things. And Mary might not be statistically representative of the American economy or whatever else you're talking about, but there's such power in it because we can picture it and we can see it. And that's really the important thing here, I think, that no matter what kind of writing you're doing, the specifics, the details, you know, the, the physical action, the anecdotes, the statistics, even though they, you know, compile a bunch of Marys, um, the facts, those are um, so valuable for conveying what you're talking about and, and really more abstractly building trust with your audience. Because when you share just that, you allow your audience to draw uh, their own conclusion. The, the opposite of that is, is sort of making the conclusions for them or summarizing or offering abstractions. Or even worse, one of the things that you, know, that you and I see quite a bit is when folks will start off, and using your unemployment example, we all know that unemployment is bad. Blah, 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 blah. There's no statistic, there's no story, and it also draws the conclusion that everybody is already on the same page when that's not necessarily the case. So it sounds like what you're saying is that when you don't have those stories, you don't have those statistics, and you're not getting to a level of specificity that will really drive the point home for a reader, that's when you're being too general. Yeah, often. So it, you, you call this something where you want people to show versus tell. Can you dive a little bit more deeply into that and what's the distinction there? Sure. You know, I was thinking about, imagine you're telling a story, like you, you come home from work and you, um, you, know, you wanna share with your friends or your family something that happened today. So I come home at the end of the day and I say, Liz was so mad today. You know, like immediately whoever is listening is going to say, well, why? What happened? What'd you do? You know, like, what were the events that, because we might not even realize it, but I'm drawing a conclusion or I'm making a generalization about another person's mood because maybe I saw Liz say something or do something or act in a certain way. So I drew a conclusion. Now, instead, it, it, it's even sort of more engaging to, to paint the picture you know, to, to show, essentially, if you'll allow that, that word, um, you know, to show what happened that allowed me to draw that conclusion and let people I'm telling the story to draw their own. So when we talk about that showing piece, that story, that anecdote, how do you do that effectively? I mean, I could imagine a scenario where I am someone who's sitting down, let's say, to write that blog post. And I've heard you and I understand that I'm supposed to have a story, an anecdote, however you want to put that. How do you know when you go too far? You know, you, if you end up in a situation where you're like, okay, I need a story for everything. You could end up literally writing a novel when you should just have like a solid, you know, 800 to 2000 word article. 
Yeah, that that's that's fair, <laughs> and that's a good point. And I don't have a great solution for that, except you have to sort of train your instincts. We all have that friend who like tells too long of a story, and I realize we're often not writing you know stories when we're writing blog posts, but it's an analogy that works here. You all know that's that friend who sort of overshares or goes into way too much detail. So there is a sort of instinctual element to it that you have to develop. Um, and obviously, just like with anything else, having another set of eyes or having a, a colleague edit something is always a good idea. But there is the danger of, of going sort of too far, of course. Um, so I think it's about training your eye for what are those details? What are those statistics? What are those, you know, little specifics that are going to illuminate whatever you're talking about? It could be you know, a, a change in um, a change in an industry. You know, it doesn't have to be like a, an anecdote. It could be, you know, you're writing about office culture, or you're writing about a product, or you're writing about like what is what are those sort of one or two things that are really going to um, are going to yield an appreciation and an understanding and an insight in your audience. Yeah, I, I think you bring up a really good point there. And one of the pieces of advice I always give people is that, you know, really focus on the stories that are going to allow people to subconsciously or, or explicitly and consciously say, oh, wow, they really get my scenario. They really get where I'm coming from. You know, if you're trying to talk about a solution to a problem that some that your reader is having, you can very quickly establish that you that you're speaking to the correct audience by painting that picture extremely vividly. And then I think also when you're telling stories, just adding little, little details here and there, instead of just saying, you know, Oh, last week, you know, you could say it was a chilly Tuesday. I was sitting <laughs> in my rickety chair, you know, something that just adds context. So people feel like they're sitting there with you. Again, you don't want to be you Atlas shrugged spending like, scores of pages describing railroads and rivets but there has to be some sort of line there but it is those little details that I think that it's not just about telling the story I think it also just makes it more human which is what we're trying to accomplish you know it's, I think it's something that you do really really well Liz uh, you know so often you're writing um, you know the latest or, or it doesn't even have to be the latest it could be um, an article, but I think you frequently sort of paint your work environment and paint your reality into whatever you're talking about. You know, it's, it humanizes, you know, like the fact that you have your cat named pumpkin, those are the details that bring something to life. And I was thinking about this for today. I was thinking about that, you know, whenever we see a, a film or a TV show in the background are these meticulously crafted sets and you, they have set designers and set design teams who who build these backgrounds you know these rooms or they're often fake rooms or, or outdoor areas uh, that are trying to convey you know some sort of mood some sort of characterization of the scene or of the person um, you know because it is it is in details that we encounter authenticity like it, it is we, we we don't we don't believe it unless we see something that has um or i'll say it the other way uh we are more quick to disbelieve something if the details don't seem to add up and i was thinking about that today you know that it's it's kind of like it, it, you know starwinian you know the idea that that environment reflects what lives there or or that like you can understand something if you study its environment um i remember this 
this novel I read one time called Lullaby by Czech Palahniuk. Uh, and, and there was this like great little description of, um, of this guy's boss. And uh, the description was that his password was password. You know, and it was like this, that was it. And, and that was sort of told you all you needed to know. And it was this sort of like keen eyed uh, image of, um, okay, well, he's that sort of person. And it allows you to draw your own conclusions. Okay, does that mean he's like, unoriginal or does that mean he just has trouble remembering things or does that mean he wants to put his focus elsewhere and doesn't really care about password or maybe he has nothing to hide like there are any number of ways to interpret it but it's this wonderful little detail that totally sticks out and and stays with the reader well i mean you can tell by the fact that it's stuck with you all this time and you're and you're bringing up today in a conversation and you know it's funny what we've been discussing here you know what what is that formula you can use to really get there this literally just reminded me and, and nobody else could see this but you saw me like frantically reaching for a book a friend of mine named melanie spring who does a lot of brand storytelling consulting i went to a workshop this past spring in april for developing you know as a keynote speaker and learning how to write talks and she has this proprietary method that I cannot take credit for, although I really wish I could because it's so stinking brilliant. It's called the DISH method, where essentially with any talk that you give, you need data, impact, a story, and humans. Data meaning like what are the different data points that you want to bring up to support your thesis? The impact, how do you want people to feel as they're reading it? What do you want them to come away with? Uh, the story, you know, what is the story that's going to contextualize the thesis that you're talking about or add that little extra oomph? And then the human piece is obviously just knowing your audience, what matters to them and so forth. And so I've now gotten into the habit when I'm creating content, whether we're talking about a big talk or not, is, you know, what are my data points? What is the impact that I'm trying to have on the audience? What are the story or stories that I want to tell that may be relevant? And who are the humans that I'm reaching out to? And sometimes just kind of gathering all of those bits and pieces together in advance before you start sitting down and writing um, is something that it can be really valuable. And again, it, she actually was a guest and I'll link to it in the show notes of when Content Lab first got started. But you can learn more about that at her website, Branded Confidence, but I'll also include a link to that in the show notes too. It's just, it's exceptionally cool. And I would think also the, the last, the human, there are so many ways to bring humanity into whatever we're writing about. That might be being really relatable. It might be sort of pathos and, and sharing, you know, your, your story. It might be humor. It might be pop culture references. Like there are lots of ways to, to be human and to connect on a human level with your audience. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about how, you know, so often in the content we're writing, we're somehow trying to convey, you know, things that feel abstract, you know, like, like mood, like company culture, like principles. Um, and I think this even happens in, in video content as well, not just in writing content. Um, but I was thinking about, you know, like that, that there are, you know, what are the details that make anything what it is? And, and um, you know, I was thinking about impact and um, I was talking to a friend. We, actually, we went out with friends for, for dinner this past weekend and they said, you know, what's it like there? And I said, well, there are beanbag chairs. You know, like whatever it is, there's some kind of singular details that can be representative and can convey culture in a way that it doesn't, you know, is much more effective than saying, we believe in a laid back office environment in which people feel free to explore their uh, space to pursue their tasks in whatever way they see fit. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Yep. Uh, one of my favorite examples is uh, I, I've told people about a middle school I went to. I'm like, well, what's it like? And he said, well, we call teachers by their we called teachers by their first names, and there was a farm. That's pretty much all you need to know. <laughs> so right. when you're looking through drafts, so it's it's a little bit more challenging, obviously, when you're the person sitting down and writing it, because once you get really close to your work. It can be very difficult to separate yourself well enough uh, to realize where the gaps are. But when you skim through a draft that someone else has given you, what are some of the red flags or things that come up that may be common threads that people can look for? I think more often than anything else, when I am editing drafts, I find myself saying, tell me more. You know, go further. I think we, we have this tendency when we write it obviously takes us way longer to write something than it takes the reader to read it so we might sort of fatigue ourselves of a certain topic long before our reader might and we somehow get into this like freak out mode where it's like oh well they're probably really bored or i've really said this really clearly uh and i, I think i've explained myself well but what's often happening when you're writing is first of all you know what you're talking about in you know through and through more so than your than the reader that you're informing or whom you're informing, but also you know while I'm typing sentence one, I'm also thinking about sentence two, and by the time I get to sentence two, I'm sort of writing sentence three. And sometimes we write in our own gaps that we can't really read within our own work. So I find myself so often with drafts from every sort of avenue and and every corner of the impact um, spectrum saying like, tell me more, give me an example of this. You know, what does this look like in practice? Back this up, like prove this to me or link to this. Like there's something where like, I find myself reading through everything with a little bit of skepticism because I wanna place myself in the position or from the perspective of the reader who is gonna say, well, I don't know if I believe that or that can't be true or I don't think that would happen or it can't be that quick or like anything, you know, if I put myself in that, in that position, I'm frequently talking to writers and saying, more than anything else, tell me more about that. Go further. Like, and I think often when we're writing things like, you know, especially introductions or conclusions, those are places to bring in a little bit of personality, to tell a little story. If you're talking about, you know, a, a client or a colleague or a, you know, a principal that you hold dear, tell a story that illuminates that. Show that in action. Um, rather than sort of telling someone how important it is or how, how worthwhile it is, give an example of how that's transformed a person or a business or a, a process. I would also say too, and I, I mentioned this phrase earlier, but it, it, it brings shivers to my body. I dislike it so much. As we all know, whenever you say, as we all know, that is a sign that you are overgeneralizing and you should replace it with a statistic or preferably a story backed up by a statistic or vice versa. Also, personal pet peeve, which piggybacks on that, in this ever-changing world of, how do we know that it's ever-changing? And also, please stop saying that language or phrase ever again. Whenever you lapse into those cliched crutch phrases, there is a good chance you are passing over a great opportunity for a story or a stat or a detail. I completely, completely agree. Plus everybody is, hates those. Everybody hates, and you can sort of tell, and you and I have done enough editing that 
those are like, that's like faux confidence in a writer, you know, where it's sort of like, they're, they're like, okay, I think I'm going to sound like I know what I'm talking about. And the effect is actually anything but. And we read that and, and actually find ourselves sort of poking holes in it saying, no, this isn't true for everyone. Or no, not everyone believes this. Or, you know, back me up, can, or back that up, convince me or support that more, more effectively. Go for 100%. it. hundred percent. Or it's literally like, this is totally true, right? And you like do a little <laughs> bit of Google food to see if you can find something to back it up. And then it's like, oh, this is effort. It's fine. Yeah, it's totally this way. We totally all know this. You lazy, lazy, lazy person. I almost said butthead. Oh, well, I guess I said it now, but it's very juvenile and I apologize. I'm hostile today. We all know this. Okay. So to bring this back full circle, what is one piece of advice you could give to someone today that would instantly make their writing better? That one thing that will help them do a better job of showing rather than just telling. I think one of the hardest things to do as writers is to see our own work objectively. I know I struggle with it and, and I've been writing for a long time. Liz, I'm sure you do in, in, in your own way. Um, it, it's hard to look at our own work and see its flaws because as I said before, so frequently we see what we think we wrote or we see what we want to write or you know, the connections that are inside our head allow us to make connections on the page which might not necessarily be there. Having some sort of process that allows you to come back to your work, and, and I, I use that phrase because I think what is so often most useful is giving yourself time and space you know, finishing a draft, if you have the time, give it 24 hours, come back to it, read it again, or send it to a colleague. And, and Liz, you know, I will frequently send something to you and say, you know, does this work? And you'll frequently send things to me and say, you know, does this work or give this a read? Um, if you don't have a colleague with whom you can do that, giving yourself a little bit of time to come back to something and have those as sort of like the sticky notes in your mind. Like, what will the skeptical reader say? Think back to that, you know, politician trying to like sell something. And I'm not saying be disingenuous or, or try to, you know, convince someone when what you're convincing them of is not actually true. But think about how powerful it is when, you know, maybe from the beginning of the show, you still remember that I mentioned Mary from Sheboygan, Wisconsin, opening a crepe stand. Like, like those little, those details are what um, enliven our work and endear our work to our audience. So read back through your work within, with sort of a magnifying glass looking for places where you can add that detail, add that specificity, add that statistic, you know, add that anecdote that's going to make, you know, your whatever you're describing come alive and, and last and stick in your reader's mind. Do it for Mary. Do it for Mary and her crepes. She's living the dream. She's counting on you. So Liz, we are joining you in the learning corner today. What are you planning on teaching us? It's very simple. In case you couldn't tell, uh, I'm a little on edge. So today's teachings have bordered from at least my perspective and my corner uh, uh, on being an airing of grievances. And that theme will continue in this week's learning corner. 
So guys and gals and wombats and whomever may be out there listening who's into content, here's the deal. Toward, afterward, backward, forward, not afterwards, towards, backwards, and forwards. There is no reason to pluralize those. Look it up in the dictionary. Do not put an S on toward, backward, forward, afterward. Just please stop doing it. It's wrong. It's just wrong. And I know that is a harsh lesson. I'm telling you you're wrong. And I'm coming from a place of having learned this lesson myself. I used to pluralize words that had no business being pluralized. So let's all come together and say, hi, my name is so-and-so. I used to put an S after those words that required none. But from this day forward, toward, backward, forward. Thank you, Liz. You're welcome. Illuminating as always. I'll be cheery next week, I promise, guys. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so take us home. Tell me what you're reading, John. So I actually just finished a book called Hillbilly Elegy um, by J.D. Vance, um, which I also found out is being made into a movie, which is kind of exciting. And it's this uh, narrative. It's It's a memoir of this young kid named J.D. Vance, who's probably about our age, Liz, who grows up very poor and, uh, you know, in this um, really kind of broken, repeatedly broken home in a place of like drug use and abuse and instability um, in uh, West, or, I'm sorry, in Kentucky and then in sort of Rust Belt, Ohio. Uh, but then he sort of, he ends up joining the Marines and he comes back and he goes to college and he graduates and then he, um, ends up going to law school at Yale in New Haven. So a bunch of the second part of the book takes place in New Haven near Impact's home offices. Um, But it's this amazing sort of look at the stratification of society at how someone comes from, you know, the very sort of bottoms uh, and from a lot of disadvantages to, uh, he's now like a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley um, when he, you know, grew up in a, in, you know, a place where he was removed from his parents' home or his mom's home. Um, by, by DCS. So like this amazing sort of tale of, of resiliency and grit and determination, um, but also a, a really broad perspective that allows him to look at uh, a lot of different segments of American society. So great book. Um, read it before the movie comes out, which is uh, being directed by Ron Howard, but I don't know anything else beyond that. Literally, that was going to be my next question. This to- totally sounds like something that's going to end up being a movie. That's fascinating. And how... How apropos, considering we were talking about storytelling today. I love that. I love that. Well, thus comes to a conclusion, yet another episode of the Content Lab. We will be back next week, but uh, in the meantime, happy writing and happy content creating. Later, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye.